You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, and you can find out more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. National Security Law Today is the podcast about national security issues and the news. We provide critical baseline information on national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers mm. and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. We strive to present unbiased information on this podcast. All right. Our guest today is the author of the memoir, Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA. John Rizzo served as the CIA's chief legal officer for over 34 years. Good Lord. John, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. I think what we want to do with you is mercilessly hit the hardest issues right from the beginning. Are you feeling ready for this? I am used to it, Lisa. Go ahead. <laughs> I would think so. You have not exactly had the easiest job in the world. All right. You know, every person who serves for any length of time at the agency is going to hit periods of time when the agency's work undergoes considerably more scrutiny. You, I guess you missed the whole Vietnam thing. But instead, you know, you had to come around about a decade before 9-11, two decades before 9-11 happened. And what you are unfortunately most remembered for is the fact that you are the guy who had to make decisions about a lot of things um, that have come to the attention of the public, including most notably the enhanced interrogation techniques, um, some of which are referred to as waterboarding. You also uh, had to handle issues with respect to the destruction of the tapes that memorialize these events. And I would say in terms of legal issues, those are some of the most controversial of any in recent memory. So first, I want you to give us a little bit of context, place those techniques and the facts in historical context for us and describe for us some of the characters that were subjected to these techniques and why that occurred. Well, the uh, techniques arose, obviously, in the wake of 9-11. There was a tremendous sense of panic and uh, foreboding that another massive attack on the homeland was imminent. This came from the public, from the Congress, from the media, everywhere. At that juncture, on the day of 9-11, I was not actually the, the CIA general counsel. I was the senior deputy general counsel, number two. However, a month, about a month after 9-11, the general counsel, a man named Bob McNamara, uh, resigned. So I became the acting general counsel, and as fate would have it, as acting general counsel, I was the, uh, I was the guy sitting in the chair when CIA counterterrorism specialists, after having captured their first high-level al-Qaeda operative, about three months after 9-11, came to me with what they said were techniques 
unprecedented techniques that they felt were the only way to break what they considered to be this senior al-Qaeda member, a man named Abu Zubaydah, intransigence. So that's how the techniques were produced. Now, what was Abu Zubaydah... And let me say this, pardon me for doing this, but we're calling it enhanced interrogation techniques. I think a fair argument about some of these techniques is under the law, they potentially meet the definition of torture by some people. And I think that was one of the, the high criticisms. So for those of you listening to this podcast, to hear that and believe that it's a euphemism, we will certainly address that in the fullness of the, of the broadcast. But Zubeda did what? What was his role? Was he a nobody? Well, at the time, he was thought to be. And uh, full disclosure on my part on behalf of the agency in that, you know, the first uh, months of 9-11, our intelligence about the al-Qaeda leadership other than bin Laden was, was uh, let us say, incomplete. Abu Zubaydah was thought to be, at the time of his capture, he was the first high-level uh, figure captured, was thought to be basically the chief operations head of al-Qaeda and uh, a man who knew, if anyone would know in the al-Qaeda hierarchy, whether there was going to be another imminent attack, where it would happen, when it would happen. So that's why he was considered so critical. Uh, now, as, as the years have gone by and more more information was acquired about Zubeda, evidently he was not quite as senior as, as the agency initially thought, but he was still a key al-Qaeda operative. And so the other fellow we refer to by initials, KSM, famous Khaled Sheikh Mohammed, who I will remember forever as the guy in the wife beater t-shirt when finally captured. So uh, what was his role thought to be and what do we now, what do we now know? Uh, well, actually, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, is a, by his own account, is, is the mastermind uh, of the 9-11 attacks. They say he readily and sort of proudly agreed to that role when he was captured. So unlike Zubeda, who, as I say, the intelligence, original intelligence about him probably made him more significant than he actually was, no question now or forever or, or that KSM was the, was the uh, linchpin of the attacks. So he was more of the operational head, it would have appeared, after a time than Zubeda. Right. That's correct. That's correct. Right. And so you describe a climate in which um, we, we were afraid of a specific secondary kinetic attack on the homeland. Is that where we were? Yes. Remember, uh, I say remember, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm remember. dating myself here, but maybe some of your listeners may remember the atmosphere in the country. In those first two or three months after 9-11, there was the shoe bomber, Richard Reed, who tried to blow up a transatlantic flight. There were the anthrax letters, which at the time were thought to be possibly part of a a separate al-Qaeda terrorist attack. So it was a time of of great fear and foreboding. And the imperative to the CIA and the FBI... And I should note, uh, parenthetically, both CIA and FBI, of course, failed the country by not identifying and and, uh, deterring the original 9-11 attack. 
great pressure on both organizations from everywhere in the country to do whatever it took to prevent another terrorist attack. So that was the atmosphere. So the idea was um, applying a, the right kind of pressure. Any future plot, plot would be disclosed and thereafter could be prevented. And that could not only protect the homeland, but to a degree also raise the esteem of those agencies, which frankly had sunk. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's fair to say, I think I've I said this in the book, that if if there had been a second massive attack on the homeland after 9-11, I really think that the future and the very existence of the CIA and FBI would have been in jeopardy. I mean, we simply could not allow that to happen. That was clear. So let's talk for a second. Um, decisions were not made in-house at the CIA. What, what did you do, sort of what processes did you go through in order to render a decision that on the outside may have seemed like, oh, she should have just immediately said, no, you can't do that. There were actually a little, some more nuances in your mind at the time. What process did you go through to sort of reconcile the request to undertake this, these techniques, this heavy-handed techniques, and to resolve the legal issues, which, you know, quite frankly, as an attorney, you have to do? Yes, well, um, bear in mind when the, uh, there's no question that the idea of food enhanced interrogation program emanated from the CIA counterterrorist center. Um, a few months after 9-11 when Abu Zubaydah was captured, his capture was a linchpin for this program. And so I was acting general counsel then. We're talking here about February of 2002 or Mar early March. The, as I indicated earlier, our experts position at CIA who were questioning Zubeda <clears throat> was that he was holding back and that and that more aggressive measures had to be taken. So that's how the idea of these techniques came up. The counterterrorism people came to my office. I had no no warning about this. They sat there and spilled what it was they proposed to do. I will tell you now, I had never heard of the term waterboarding before in my life. I had never mercifully in my entire 25 years at CIA before that had to examine the applicability of the torture statute to anything. So I was truly tabula rasa. And as they described these proposed techniques, waterboarding, the extended sleep deprivation, other you know gruesome techniques, I was... My first thought was, well, this is crazy. You can't, you can't do this. This sounds terrifying out of an Edgar Allan Poe novel. And um, wow. I think I could have, I could have stopped, stopped the program right there before it even got started, before, frankly, it even left the building at CIA. But then I paused uh, after I got this fire hose briefing, walked around CIA headquarters smoking a cigar, and started playing out in my mind, well... Okay, I can do this. I could actually stop this. I can go to the CIA director. By that time, I had been there so long and I think acquired a, a reputation where I could have gone to George Chen, who was a close friend, and said, look, this is crazy. It's going to get us in trouble. I don't know if it's legal or not, but we can't do it. I could have done that, and I think he would have uh, stopped it, stopped the idea. But then as I... As I contemplated this, going around the building with my cigar, playing out in my mind a scenario, okay, I can go back in there and say, basically squelch it. But then, what happens there's another 
major attack on the homeland. Thousands of people in the streets again. And then the inevitable post-mortem, in the literal sense of that term, it would come to pass that congressional or executive branch investigators discovered that CIA experts, counterterrorism experts, had said these techniques are the only ones that could break Zabeda's silence. And it turned out in the aftermath that Zabeda said, yeah, I knew about that second attack, and you couldn't. I told you you couldn't make me talk. I would have felt in that event, I couldn't countenance the possibility of, in that event, me feeling like I had played a part in another massive catastrophe on innocent civilians. So that's why I decided, rather than to just squelch the program, to go to a CIA director and recommend that we submit this whole program of proposed techniques to the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel for a definitive legal view. Okay. And so just quickly for our listeners, um, there is a portion in the segment of statutes under the Attorney General's Act that commands the Attorney General's designee in the Office of Legal Counsel to provide advice to agency heads, um, frankly, in whether something is actually legal. And so in this instance, you did this. You've referred it to OLC, as it is known to most people. Um, And that is the famous memo that was attributed largely to John Yoon, which, if I recall correctly, please correct me, you're much closer to this, but the analysis was that whatever the torture analysis was, it had to be a a nation, and al-Qaeda didn't meet the definition of some sort of a, a hostile nation or a different nation as such. It was not a state. Yeah, that was that was part of it, Elisa. Another part of it was that the techniques did not did not meet the definition of the torture statute, which is, as I recall, something like mental extended mental and physical suffering. It was a very controversial memo uh, that you're correct. John Yu uh, wrote. He was not actually the head of the OLC. It was a man named Jay Bybee, who's now a federal appeals court judge. So Jay Bobby actually signed the memo that was addressed to me that basically concluded that the proposed techniques did not violate the torture statute. So we uh, began the uh, program on that legal basis. So let me ask you, though, this is a very interesting perspective. And one of the reasons why we do this podcast is for younger listeners who may go into national security law Um, And this is exactly the kind of crisis of conscience that you could face wherever you go, whatever the program. um, You're not sure which way you tip in terms of your analysis could cause more loss of human life. But in this case, it sounds like uh, you really felt like you needed that external advice. Yeah, I must tell you that, that, uh, again, keep in mind, I've been at CIA for 25 years at that point, been through a lot of crises including the Iran-Contra affair, another probably dusty in the dustbin of uh, history of many of your many of your listeners, but it was a big deal at the time in the mid-'80s. But not to judge Paul Friedman. <laughs> <laughs> Bear in mind, not to him. <laughs> but I, you know, at that moment, when, when these techniques were proposed to me and I was deciding what I should do, I realized, I think, that either way, CIA, no matter what, what happened? See, I was going to get screwed. Either I vetoed the techniques 
as I said earlier, another massive attack, and then CIA would be blamed for being too risk-averse, as they had been blamed before the original 9-11 attacks, or there was no, no second major attack, which mercifully proved to be the case. And as time went on, I mean, knowing Washington and political realm we live in here, as time went on and the memories of 9-11 began to fade, there would be a re-examination, a reassessment. And the atmosphere that was happening early after 9-11 would have devolved from, in that period, the big thing was do whatever you have to do to, to prevent another attack, to several years later, wait a minute, what, what have you guys been up to? So I think either way... I mean, I sort of reconciled. The agency was not going to come out of this uh, in good shape. Can I can I ask you a little bit about this reexamination? Um, because I think, especially now, it's you know one of the reasons that you're on the podcast is because these conversations are now coming back into the news in a very big way. You referenced the uh, Iran Counter Affair, and Scooter Libby just got pardoned by the president recently. More to the point of what we're discussing now the uh, nominee for the director uh, post of the CIA, Gina Haspel, um, has had her nomination complicated by her participation in these programs. And so I wonder if you, you know, this is part of the conversation about reexamining things. What do you think, you know, hindsight is 2020, we have the benefit of your experience. What advice would you give to somebody who, you know, is considering reanimating these these techniques. The president has spoken about bringing back this program, and how would you advise him if you were in that position? I don't think, first of all, I don't think anything resembling this program, I don't think CIA should get involved in any of it, given the given the, the, the long, tortured, coin of phrase, uh, history of this program, and the seemingly never-ending controversy it generates. So, I, I really do not think, and I certainly would not endorse CIA going down this road again. It just caused so much, continues to cause so much uh, angst in the public and inside the agency. So, no, I would not recommend that. As uh, regards Gina Haspel, who I've known for many years and I have deep respect for, I hope she gets confirmed. I can speak of some experience because I was nominated to be the general counsel in 2007. It was a, it's also a presidential appointed Senate confirmed position. And uh, not to put too fine a point of it, my nomination went down in flames because of my <laughs> admitted deep involvement in the program. I was involved in it from the beginning. Uh, so, so but she that, was too, was she not? She, uh. she, she was a part of the program. Honestly, not. I mean, I was, I was more involved. I had a more senior role. I wouldn't, you know, she was part of it. But there were hundreds of people at the agency that were part of it. She, she, she worked for the head of covert operations at CIA, a man named Jose Rodriguez. But in all, all honesty, uh, Gina was not a a major architect like I was of the program. So, so as we can see. Now, uh, this will obviously come up in her confirmation hearing, and I wish her the best of luck. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. This is the end of part one of our conversation with John Rizzo. Join us again next week to hear more about the CIA, the enduring controversy over these programs, and congressional hearings. Visit us online at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember, as much as we love to see you online, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. Our next event is on May 22nd in Washington, D.C., and Joyce Carell of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center will talk about the Internet of Things and supply chains, the next generation of vulnerabilities in national security. Learn more and sign up online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.